This is Yudaha Kohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. As many of you know, we are uh, almost in the middle of a Shemitah year, a sabbatical year. This is the year Tavshin Pei Bet, uh, 5782. Uh, and because it's a Shemitah year, and I think there are aspects of Shemitah that the Jewish people tend to focus on and aspects of Shemitah that the Jewish people are not focusing on yet. Uh, I asked my friend Shaul Yudelman to join me on the show. Shaul lives in Tekoa with his family. He's a co-director at Roots Shorashim. Uh, and he's had some experience, you know, dealing with the less centered aspects of Shemitah. Uh, and I thought he can share some thoughts some insights and uh, help us better understand how we can maybe incorporate some of what I would call the ignored uh, features of Shemitah into our modern life as a nation in the land of Israel. Shaul, welcome to the show. Thanks, Yehuda. Good to be back um, here in the box, but I get to see good stuff again. And um, vision's a good a good direction for uh, opening for what, what Shemitah is. Um, I just personally, today I'm less involved with things connected to, like thinking about Shemitah in Israeli society, although maybe maybe not, we'll get to that at the end. Um, but I, I arrived in Israel in 2000, Erev Shnat Shemitah, to a kibbutz and uh, to stay the owl, seeking kind of my own, whatever, I'm looking for my own, what, what does it mean for Jews to be on the land and what does our tradition have to say about that relationship? So, you know, how people live on land is a question all over the world today. Mm-hmm. And what's our Jewish way? And um, and Shemitah hit me on a lot of levels. And I think, like you said, it's certainly more important for me, Shemitah today, there's the halachot of Shemitah, how we live it today, but, but the question it asks of us, the, the way it makes us think, the question it opens for us for me is like that's that there's a that opens things with a lot of points of departure for rethinking what Jewish life is today here in Israel. Big questions of what are we doing here? What's this whole project of, of Israel about? That those the same kind of questions that grabbed me uh, 21 years ago um, and sent me off to Yeshiva and, and a million other things. So that being said, I'm coming from the perspective that the Torah, the Nifuah that the Creator gave us, uh, instructs us how to create a model society, how to create a civilization here in this land that happens to be our soulmate in order to shine light to the rest of the world, to inspire the rest of the world, to ultimately lead humanity into a better world. Uh, And I think that that's not limited to our kitchens or to our synagogues. I think that the Torah has what to say about how to organize our economy, how to organize our society. And I think Shemitah has a lot to say about that. And unfortunately, we're still at the stage in terms of our national development. We're, we're limiting Shemitah, we're reducing Shemitah to the question of what produce do I buy and consume this year? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, there's the Gemara that says that since the Beit HaMikdash is destroyed, which was the house where the Shekhinah lived, and the Beit HaMikdash was, was not just a house of prayer, it was a house, it was the centerpiece of a society and a civilization and a way of living in it was a God-centered civilization, but it was very interested in those fruits that were produced over there in the far corners of the land and, and what they meant in the relationships between the people who harvested the fruits and the people who didn't have fruits and how they brought them there. And that was a real centerpiece. So the Gemara says, since the Beit HaMikdash was destroyed, the, the Shekhinah, God's presence, which, which is supposed to dwell amongst all those actions, has no, nowhere other than the four Amot of Halacha, right? the, 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 the two meters of Halacha, which really means the personal space. Right. The personal devotion, and, and that became the focus of, of Judaism in exile. Well, well, that's what we call Judaism, this like religion where it's just about what I do in the synagogue, what I do in the kitchen, what I do in the bedroom, you know, Shabbat, Kashrut, uh, festivals, and the mikvah. That's basically the four amount of halacha. That's the, the Judaism. Right. 
Personal practice, family practice, right? And then, so here comes Zion, here comes a mifgash, a meeting with, with Zionism, a sense of, of national identity, of national story, and which I, you know, and and that meeting coming together and bringing us back in this last hundred plus years of iteration of Jewish life here, it's supposed to open something new about how we think. And like you said, the the one of the the shames, the the letdowns is that when we come to a mitzvah like Shemitah, which is many of all the mitzvot, it's it's such a collective basis. It's such a collective question. Is you can't do Shemitah by yourself. It's not like you, you could, you know, wherever in the world you can go light Shabbat candles, but even more than other mitzvot that are connected to the land, Shemitah is really a mitzvah of a, it's a commandment of a society. It's a work of a society. And, um, and, and in terms of looking to the Torah for that guidance on, on, on what is a Jewish approach on the on economy? What, what is a just Jewish society? The way I like to say it crassly, it's a, it's a very important question in Judaism if your milk spoon falls into a meat soup. But it's an equally important question. What's a Jewish way to design a, a just society and a just economy in, 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 a, in a Jewish state? How do we aspire for those, those that prophetic call, the, the call of our people, what it means to these things? And, and so that, that thing is, Shemitah has to, is, the question of Shemitah then is to start forcing us to ask those questions. And instead of reducing it to this little question of where the vegetables came from, um, I think it should be, in a sense, in, in Rav Cook's vision, in a sense, a vision of a year where, where we ask those questions. We think about those bigger pictures. Um, it creates, you know, Rav Cook in his introduction to Shevet, his, his, his Alechic book about Shemitah has, has an incredible vision of Jewish society. And Shemitah is a really core role to play. One, one role, as we know, and, and obviously the, the theme on the economic debate in the world is, is capitalism versus socialism. Like, co collective comes first or the individual comes first. What's the best way to run things or what's the right way to run things? What's the natural way to run things? We phrase it different ways. But you know, Shemitah gives us six years of, of, of not unrestrained, but of personal development and your private holdings and private economy is, is real and that is your land and you can profit on as you wish. But once every seven years, to remember that the person you're profiting off of here is your brother, your sister. This collective story is, is in, in that world, we're all equals. And uh, and a very deep, you know, the tenets of socialism are very much found in that kind of understanding of, of the world. Um, so that question to, to force us out of out of our personal boxes and think those bigger pictures is is one, one um, one function of Shemitah for the Jewish people, that once every seven years, think about the big picture. It's time to, and, and then plot your course, just like Shabbat can be used on a personal level. Like Rav Kook says, Shabbat comes to the individual once a week to take a day off and think about what I did this week, what, what I need to do better work, where I'm going in my life. A time to have some space to do that out of all the runnings and hustlings of the world. Yeah, the same thing for the Jewish nation is a year to take a day to do that. And um, you know, I've heard you talk before about, about democracy and the kind of critiques of, of, of this you know, vote once every couple of years and call it a day thing. And Shemitah, in a sense, is in Rav Kook's vision, there's also a very big invitation to a very much more participatory democracy, something where, where that collective sense is incumbent. We all have to think about it, to deal with it, to, to take to it, and let it make it impact our own our own ways of lives. That's, for me, is a, a big part of the, the question that Shemitah is supposed to pose to us, that, that in, right, in many ways, we're, we're just missing when we think about Shemitah and, and, um, and, how, and where, where the vegetables come from. Right. Even when we try to apply Shemitah in the modern age, there are real questions that come up, meaning that uh, the laws of Shemitah that we have were given to us at a time when our entire economy was essentially agriculturally based. So the focus is agriculture. I think one of the questions we would have to ask in the modern age if we tried to unpack Shemitah on the national level is, do we limit this to agricultural production or is it all non-essential production? Meaning, do we shut down our yeah. industry for a year? Like, what, what are, are we taking a year off as a nation? Or is it just like the farmers are going to have to suffer for a year and not know, you know, with, with their uncertainty? Right. 
Absolutely. When I, when I arrived on the kibbutz, and, and, and it was kibbutz Teliyahu and Tachshins and Samech Aleph, there was Shemitah, and there's a big discussion on the kibbutz whether to actually use that to Mechir and what to do it, or maybe actually keep the Shemitah. But I remember there's an, there's an ire, like, like anger, <laughs> I-R-E, <laughs> indignation amongst people about, about these about Jewish farmers in the land who are actually midparnes and making a living from farming and suffering because, but, but the people in the cities, the religious world in the largely urban or suburban, not involved in Chaklut. They're having these demands about what Shemitah should be. And that's that's 99.9% of the Jewish people in Israel are not involved in agriculture. 9.95%. Like there's a half a percent of the modern Israeli Jews who are actually making a living from working the land. And you're right. If we want to take the what the impact of the mitzvah is going to be, of course, that takes us out of the halachic world. We're not talking about what's the impact of the mitzvah. What's the reason for the mitzvah? What's the mitzvah supposed to do upon us? And um, but that's I think that means breaking out of that part of the galut is to see that in a bigger way to allow those parts of things and, and just recognize the Jewish society. It's not just me in my house in, in Poland deciding whether or not I'll light the candles or not. No, there's a mitzvah here. Um, so for me, that's a space that it invites some creative thinking. Mm-hmm. And and you know, I'll just say as a caveat, I also want to say it's it's not halachic thinking. It's not halachic thinking. It's it's thinking. It's 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 in a sense it's Zionist. You know, if I put that as a two a paradigm between Zionism and, and, and Judaism, between national identity and religious practice. I'm going to the national space. I want to think about those things because I, I think that's where you know Judaism believes in the physical world, the material world, being a place where the changes have to happen. What we do there is real. It has it's, it's, it's the same importance whether you pray today as whether you give tzedakah today. Um, so, but to open that way of thinking, right, to make it act upon modern people. So, so about last Shemitah or two Shemitahs ago, already, um, I was involved in an initiative called called Shemitah Yisraelit. An Israeli Shemitah, which exactly started asking those questions in modern Israeli society today, modern modern society today. What's the message of these things to us? And one of the first, I think, big understandings that came out of there is right. In the ancient time, the Jew would work his land, and that's where he made his money. Many, very few of us do that today. What do I? What do I work? What's the field that I work in today? I have my time. Most people get paid on an hourly wage, not on how many pounds or kilos of, of produce they create. They they work hours and they get paid for those hours. So they said one translation of Shemitah's message into modern times is, uh, is, is I need to, what about how, 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 I'm so possessed of my time. You, you would even talking about this, having this conversation. It's like, wait a second, I have from eight to nine and then I have to be at work at 10 or 15. Where are we going to do the talk? Um, and in Shemitah, there's a message away. It's like your time, which you normally sell. We sell our hours of, of labor to, to our employers. So maybe it's incumbent upon employers to give their employees that time for, for, for what, for what it's supposed to be. Um, and so we started on that line of thought, and it was in the last in the last Shemitah, there was there were several projects of um, everything from, for instance, national parks opening national parks, which normally charge admission to spend time in the park, to letting the parks be open. There were some businesses in Israel that came along and gave monthly employee days, where employees were, were family days for employees, and it's in, in like in the ruach, in the spirit of Shemitah. But their employer is giving their employees a chance to, to bring their families out and do do an activity for them, pay for the company on on, on the company bill. It's a day of work. Um, a sense of taking the sense of, of, of releasing my hold on, on my means of production or, and the way that I really, how that affects others, I'm saying enslaves others, but in a certain way. Um, so that line of thing was amazing. You know, that's a whole new way to, and that then becomes something that's not, it can, you know, that find a way to take that value and apply it on, on local levels. There's all kinds of things. Um, time banks, there's a thing that, that, that actually, there's a the thing that we'll call time banks where we take a community like a small town that lives together you make a list of everybody's skills everybody puts on i i can fix cars i can teach math i can do babysitting 
and uh, and you trade your hours. You give yourself an hour, you get back an hour. You can, you're willing, maybe in Shmita, you're willing to give a little bit more. You donate three hours of your skills to whatever people in your community need. And, and uh, we live right then in Batayin, and a time bank was made, and people could call it everything, from everything, exactly. I need, I, need, I need a ride, I needed this. And uh, it's a way of, of, uh, of creating a commons, you know, of seeing each other, of um, the things that normally distinguish between I'm better than you, I'm more than you, I'm less than you. No, it's, if I volunteer to teach math, then it doesn't matter that I'm a, actually a professor of this. I'm going to spend an hour this week teaching math to the seven-year-old down the street who needs to help, because that's, that's something I can do. And that happened. That that is what took place in Batayin last Shemitah year. Yeah, we actually, yeah, the time the time bank spread to a lot of places. There's an Antevi on the Shemitah Israelite. There's a website. I'll maybe I put it to you. Send it for the show, when we publish the show. That um, you can go look at all these different projects that people took and applied in different places. Um, and and then you guys, you have, so you have. I remember back on the keyboards, they said they they want us farmers to be holy and and not not work the land. But what about debt relief? <laughs> what about forgiving debt? So what about those tremendous cycles? That's a very central part of Shemitah in the Torah is wiping out people's debts. So yeah, how would that apply in the modern age? Do we just like take every Israeli out of minus? Everybody's minus is wiped out, or so the way that the people who designed that in Shemitah Israelite were working. It was it was just before the Lebanon before the Lebanon war. It was working. They worked with the government. And they worked with the, the big debt holders, the big companies that hold big debts in Israeli society. And they also brought into it, because you're right, there's a sense in Chazal, like in the rabbis in the time of Shemitah, already recognized the problem. Wait a second, if you just forgive debts every seven years, well, you know, the first level is, well, people are just going to take advantage of that. But the real level, no, people know it's going to happen and people are going to stop giving loans. And that's not going to work. So the question of how to play with the market is, is tricky. And it's 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 much trickier than a than a soundbite or a simple proclamation, you know, forgive debt. So what we brought into the the what we I'm really not me, but others who worked on those programs did. They brought in um, Israeli nonprofits like Pamonim is an Israeli nonprofit that helps families do financial planning. Mm-hmm. They take people who are stuck in debt and will help you work with you to build budgets, to understand how to stick to a budget, to understand what you can do with the money you have, how to how to become financially more stable and responsible. They they, they do really great work. And um, so the project that happened last time, I think they put, I don't know, I think 50,000 Israeli families currently in debt. We're going to have a third of their debt. They're working with, I think it was like electric companies, phone companies, have a third of their debt forgiven, straight out. A third of their debt, debt was going to be deferred without interest. And a third of the debt was going to be paid by the, by the, there's a foundation, there's a fund in Israel that goes towards supporting farmers who keep Shemitah, but there was a lot of money in that fund. And they were going to give a, enough money, that money to, to wipe out debt for people. But... The catch was the only families that were going to be accepted into this program were people who agreed to work with those nonprofits in doing financial planning. Mm-hmm. And um, it was a really amazing, really well-built, integrated program. Ruth Calderon was in the Knesset then. And um, whatever, the government then fell apart that summer and it, it didn't go to other work. But that's an example, I'd say, that's an example of what debt forgiveness could look like in a way that's, that's, that's real, that's attentive to what's going on today, to the economic needs, to the, you know, and uh, not to give people a free pass. Um, but but also to recognize how you know how you know that's a huge issue in the world today. Anybody, most people have gone to college understand that, and and, and much more. Um, so building a structured society to to keep that from being something that that goes on, that becomes inherited, that passes on to the next generation, um, that sticks your family down. You know, and if you're putting thinking about shmita in context also of jubilee, right? Um, of, of these seven year cycles of right, so you know, once every seven years, the, the yovel, right? That every 50 years is even a bigger reset in society, and then you know to mad. I think it's a question whether the Jewish people ever actually kept Jubilee Yovel back in the day, 
but but um you know we have to aspire to the next time but that becomes a huge question of you know jubilee yovel is really dependent on people knowing which tribe they're from and knowing where your land holdings are and your families traditional land holding it's a society which we don't have today i know exactly what tribe i'm from well, <laughs> yeah yes yes but that right. doesn't matter because my tribe doesn't have any land that's right yes you you'll be reaping the fruits of our work but um I, I saw a lot of people writing last week you know critiquing what yosef atzadik does in 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 egypt in this how a society you know that playing with the ownership of land right just place of the colony and how do we distribute land what what's what's thing so i'll tell you another on a on a very bad you know real estate market in israel is crazy if you're hoping and dreaming of buying a house of, of buying a house not just building a house you know it's 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 crazy and it's gotten out of control and this and what it's all based on this resource called this land of israel which people feel we can buy and own and through that creates a marketplace so a friend of mine here in um in tokoa um tzachi dvira he runs the the excavation projects for the for the temple mount excavations he's also a very forward-thinking creative-thinking jewish person you should actually have him on the show sometime okay. and um and he had a whole question about real estate in Tekoa where I live real estate is crazy people want to, and who's can buy who can afford to buy a house but this land was not supposed to be a thing that fell into that level of uh, of, of holdings mm-hmm. there's some aspect of these of, of private landership right and in, in modern Israel is it is carry some ruach of, of shmitah there's the 50 year leases that are given there's not really much there isn't very much privately owned land but the way the marketplace goes about and he has he had an idea of um of land of there should be just like we just like we come to say that you know there's a right there's these rights that we have people have the discourse of five rights to things he says we should have a right to the land it should be part of it and it should be something that should be equally distributed in a way of redistributing wealth in the society mm-hmm. um which is obviously very radical economic thought but he goes to really think what how the torah sees things right and then try, try to apply it in a modern way there's something very real to to that um that's that's maybe our harder pill the harder legislation to pass in a modern society but but putting those questions up i think one thing shmita gives us is the is the thought to address those things from a jewish perspective to bring them to make them meet you know actuality you know modern life and modern issues and that, that conversation is critical i think for, for you know for for envisioning what, what life is supposed to be here and it also is a tremendous place i'd say also of um of contributing to the discussion that's going on anyway in the in the, in the, in the economic world and you know, other fields as well both that you know both in terms of the global economic discussions taking place but also even the internal discussions over what it means to have a jewish state meaning we're arguing over whether or not there should be buses on shabbat or stores should be open in tel aviv but the conversation never gets to the socioeconomic level or the ramifications of shmita for the average israeli worker or whether or not we should sell weapons to human rights violators or what or how we run a healthcare system in a jewish society or what is the role of a non-jew in a jewish society like these are questions we're not really having at the national level and even when there is some kind of discussion of her you know the jewish character of the state it what, what it essentially is is the daladamot the individual private Judaism just applied on the national level rather than looking at the national Torah meaning the 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 Torah's prescription for how to create a society how to run a society yeah no I I agree and I'm also when I say I'm, all, I'm also terrified of a theocracy like I you know because just how I know it and I have my perush on how this this passage goes and I think it's beautiful somebody else is a parish in the opposite direction thinks it's beautiful as well Mm-hmm. And and the so and the and I I also want to say um this is something just for me uh, an inheritance from from Rav Fruman of Menachem Alav Shalom Zmirad 
the go the free choice. Mm-hmm. We can't have a state dictating I, the, the, the state dictating religious principles here, and here comes the very messy stuff of Judaism. Because Judaism, right? It's not just it's not just what you what you put in your mouth. Um, but the question of how you decide that for somebody else, you know, like buses on Shabbat, are really tricky questions. And I think there's the the there the, the could be a the way to go about them and having this is, is critical work. And it's also really a real question of how we do that in, in a way that's healthy to to the Am, to, to, to the collective. Um, I, I and I had a lot of pride, you know, the, the kibbutz, the story of the kibbutzim, and, and the socialist nature of Israel, and, and even like what's left, you know, modern healthcare today. I think that if any, I want to say the values of Jewish state. I want to say they're not just the random economic policies of what happened here, but at the same time, I see look at the privatization of the state. You know, the, the, the largely neoliberal economics that have kind of dictated what's gone here the last thirty years, mm-hmm. which came about because of a financial crisis, which are real. You know, so that going into those questions and trying to find a way, you know, what's What's the, the the Torah contribution to those conversations is, is really, it's fascinating. It needs to be done more. And I think... Um, it's it's fascinating, it, you said, but it, it's scary. Like you said, you're frightened, you're terrified of the idea. First of all, I'm, I'm not sure the word theocracy is the right word. I, right, I, uh-huh. People, look, the public is afraid of these conversations. Let's be honest. The Israeli public is, for the most part, conditioned to be afraid of these conversations because we're told by our media, by certain leaders, that these conversations will either lead to a giant Haredi community or a Jewish Iran. And I'm of the opinion that that's not what we came back here to build. We did not come back to life after 2000 years to build a giant Haredi community as a nation state. We didn't come back to create some oppressive, you know, Jewish version of Iran. Uh, we came back to build a civilization that will inspire the rest of humanity. If, if we're doing it right, um, we'll know. If we're doing it wrong, we'll know. But what we have now is a situation in which we're afraid to even have the conversation, where to even have these conversations over the socioeconomic ramifications of the Shemitah year, how will that affect people in debt? Uh, how, how do we deal with you know the real estate market in a modern Jewish state, you know, under the current conditions? Like these are conversations we're afraid to have selling weapons to human rights violators, even the conversation about Shabbat in terms of it being coercive or not coercive, you know, everybody centers in that conversation, the person who wants to go to the mall, the person who wants to take the bus to the beach, but no one is talking about the person who's forced to work, you know, driving a bus or work in retail at the mall on the one day a week, he knows all his kids are home from school. Right, right, no, absolutely, yeah, um, I think, but I, I think one thing that I like in having a conversation now, one of the big problems is how politicized religion has become, right? And in a sense, we're both kind of, what we've been saying so far is the, the answer is more to bring in more. I, I hear people say, no, you know, get the religion far away. The revenue shouldn't have what to say about, about marriages and, and, you know, and, and civil marriages in the state of Israel. Um, and, and we see the, you know, and why is it the, the, the Haredi world, which doesn't even really acknowledge Zionism, is the one that's running the religious courts for the state of Israel. Um, because politics, because mm-hmm. of power, because because of power, power politics. So the question, so I, in a sense, what you and I both have a, I think like a tamim, like a, like a not naive, but like a purist vision of what could be done here in a Jewish vision, Jewish values being applied in a Jewish state. Mm-hmm. But the reality of how those things come out becomes really, really tricky. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the question of, so, so maybe it's about picking certain issues on where those things can, where those values can be thought about, consensus built around them and, and presented. Mm-hmm. But but we're stepping into the, the current minefield, which, which is already you know 100 years of uh, 90 years of, uh, of of religious secular you know real battles in, in this society, 
and, and power struggles. You know, the you know, and here comes Matan Kahana trying to make reforms how we three kashut and, and I think taking steps to be more um, more amenable to where a lot of the a lot of modern Israelis are. And it's you know, it's in a, and we see what kind of back you know today they they stop doing conversions as a protest of the conversion thing. Like it's it's such a mess in there. Well, I, I think we're misframing the struggle. I think that's part of the mm -hmm, problem. Mm -hmm. right? These fights are being miscontextualized. They're being contextualized as a fight between, like, like you said, religious and secular, which I think are very, it's a very Western paradigm that doesn't really fit our people. Like, like re religious people, secular people, that's a Christian thing that we picked up in Europe. You know, Mizrahi Jews didn't come here with, oh, well, I'm a secular Jew, I'm a religious Jew. That, that was something that was uniquely Ashkenazi because Ashkenazim lived in Christian society. Just like I think right and left, are very um, are very poorly applied to Israeli politics. I think religious and secular are also very poorly applied to Israeli society. I think there is a fight going on between uh, forces of Westernization, uh, people who want to. It, it's also you know the neoliberal direction Israel's taken in the last three decades. Uh, that's part of Westernization. Um, you know these battles uh, about make. You know, look, I, I am personally am not supportive mm -hmm. of what Matan Kahana is doing. I think he's also the way he's trying to strong arm is very distasteful to me. Um, and, and I'm not sure the Haredim should be running these things. I think one of the reasons, like you said, that they've been they've been able to take hold uh, of these institutions is because of power politics. But another reason is that because most of Israeli society, I think, has passively trusted them to do it right. Um, I think they I think I think they seeded them. They seeded I wasn't they trusted. I don't think they trusted. I think they said that's they seeded that authority. They seeded Judaism. They seeded Jewish identity in many ways to those places. Let's say the average guy the average guy who drives a bus or you know, has a shop somewhere and, you know, he, he's not dealing with all these things, but he wants, you know, he wants to make sure his kids are going to have a Jewish education. They're going to marry Jews. If they marry somebody who did Giyur, they want to make sure it's a real Giyur. Like they assume that if right. the, the Haredim did the Giyur, it's real. That, that's the average person right. who assumes that. Hey, the Kashrut also, they walk into a, they, they walk into a uh, sandwich place, they buy a chicken sandwich. They see a tuda on the wall. They trust that if the Haredim said it's kosher, it's kosher. Whether that's true, not true, whether that has come with other baggage, it's a great question. But but I think for the most part, the Haredim, you know, the average person, not just Jew, the average human in the world, looks at a Haredi Jew and says, oh, there's an authentic Jew. I mean, we see it, um, the other side yeah. of the point is uh, with Notori Karta, when, when the Notori Karta guys show up at the pro-Palestinian demonstrations, you know, they can be very easily tokenized because look, they're wearing black hats and white shirts and, and they got beard. Right. And uh, so they must know. They must know what the Torah is saying about this conflict. They must know what the Torah is saying about this issue. Um, so I think, right. you know, I also feel that um, the Haredim have, of course, monopolized. Uh, I mean, that's that's part of the problem. Part of the problem is that the Haredi world has monopolized these institutions. But the other side of that coin is that the politicians allowed that because they wanted the Jewishness of the state to exist in a corner, not to be in our economy, not to be in our army, not to be in our workplace. They wanted the Jewishness of the state to be in the corner, divorces and marriages and giur, like when people are naturalized to become Jews, like when non-Jews become Jews, um, they, they wanted, you know, that to be in the corner of the state rather than creating a state where Torah and Jewish values and Jewish identity are really permeating the society. 
but but again, I think that the problem is the conversations we're having about these issues are starting with the rules, what we're going to either coerce or not coerce or force or not force. I think we should really be starting with values, with how this helps you, how this makes your life better, how this might alleviate your debt, how this might make Israel a more moral player on the world stage, how this might help us solve our conflict with the Palestinians. Meaning, I, I think that the Torah has a lot to say about running a society in every age. Uh, in terms, I'm not even talking about laws, I'm talking about values. Meaning, I'm talking yeah, about yeah. values. No, I, I agree. And I mean, that, and there, I think there's been times when there's been a lot of, there's been attempts to really go into those issues on deep Jewish ways, but not enough. Like I can speak a little from the work I've done, like with environmental environmental thinking, mm-hmm. to, to really, t- you know, and, and then and your, the question is, when do you pass it off to policymakers? You know, mm-hmm. you have values that present a vision and a, and, a, and a direction to go, and at a certain point, you have to get really down and dirty with policies. Right. Some of those policies might just inherently have to conflict with your values because there's other there's other forces out there. Mm-hmm. But I, I agree that 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 you know that question of a Jewish take on the economy here, which I go back to the the, the general theme of. of I think Shvita's year is asking us to, to think about those questions, to take them in. And then, you, right, to choose to apply them on a personal level, to try to think about, on a, I think, a community level here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also to go to the national level. That's, that's I think, it's a real lack that in, in the religious Zionist world, you know, which should be the kind of, for me, I know, ostensibly should be the fusing of these two kinds of visions. Mm-hmm. Um, the religious focus goes back to a very Jewish way and not, not as much in engaging those big questions of, of Dava Medina or Kalkala and those, those, the, the economy state. Um, and I wonder, I want, you know, it's interesting to think, to ask people who really have been in that world for a long time, why, why, why not? Why, why are we, you know, why the focus, you know, there's plenty of things to, to make that movement from, from Sugiyot and the Gemara to, to actuality. Mm-hmm. Um, Ask those questions, and, and like you said, sometimes just it's just the development, you know, the evolution of, of the of the of the Jewish story here, of a society, and, and things that were that things that were that, that way forty years ago have changed. And um and, and I think also the question of the, the how people look to Jewish identity is or how secular, you know, I don't know like the term, but like people who aren't Shomer Mitzvot, they're not going to be Mitzvot, but that that reconnection to Jewish identity here and looking for that, which I think is something that has happened in the last thirty years in Israel, and since like there's there's been that that fusion. Fusing. And people see it in spirituality. So Jewish spiritual spiritual practices are, you know, that's something that people see with, with an eye to uh but but when the activist world, like the people the, the social justice world, world in Israel looks to looks to Judaism for those values, where's the parallel moving from the Jew from the from the Torah world into those questions is, is I think something work that needs a lot to be done still. Right. And I and I think that's where the strategy comes in because you asked where does this actually manifest as policy? I think that there's certainly a good number of members of Knesset today who would like to see the state be more Jewish, would like to see the state be more in line with the values of our Torah or even the laws of our Torah. Um, I think if we focus on the more, for lack of a better term, the more uh, leftist uh, areas of Torah in terms of how it applies to society, like Shemitah, like meaning if we were to come and say, like we're only focusing on the areas of what the Torah has to say about a nation state, uh, about a society that would be perceived in the modern political spectrum as left, okay? As dealing with mm-hmm. real material needs. Uh, if we focus on those areas of Torah and we get the political left, I, you know, the, the real left, I don't mean merits. I mean, like, you know, I mean like the joint list, et cetera. Like we get the Hadash, we get like the real left on board, and then we take it to the national religious and the Haredi politicians 
they're not going to say no we don't want to involve halakha in this area of the state you know it's hard for them to say no to that but again if we would just have to limit it to the quote unquote left wing side of what the torah has to say and i think that for anybody you know even for a guy like uh, betzalo smotrich you know say to him listen you, you know you want the state to express and manifest torah values this is a step you know this is a step i mean yeah, it's a very good mahalach. It's, it's a process to think about, but I think you have a growing world within within the, the religious Zionist world, which which sees the opposite, which sees which sees the Torah not as a socialist document. Which sees, you know, and, and more and more speaking, you definitely have a world of this coming up, right. reading through Makori Shon, which is seeing it the other way. You know, saying those values are part of the infiltration of left and west leftist Western values, polluting what what what, what the Torah what the Torah says. So here's what I want to say that that goes back to the point at the beginning that to make the one to one connection from what the Torah says about Shemitah to say therefore. Socialism, you know, it's not so simple. There's a lot you have to, and, and doing that real work of going through those things in a learning way mm-hmm. takes a lot of a lot of work that I think hasn't, I don't know, to my sense, hasn't been done enough. And no, it hasn't happened on the on the scholarly level, meaning that the Gedolei Hador, like the giant rabbis of all the different camps, do need to be. You know, it's a blank page. Like the truth is, I mean, there, there obviously we do have what to look at in the Gemara, but in terms of applying it to today, halakhically, it is a blank page. And I think you're 100% right that in recent years, what we've seen is like the infiltration of, and this is part of Westernization. We've seen the infiltration of like right-wing American and European values in the Israeli national camp, in the Jewish national camp. You know, um, you, you mentioned Rav Kook before. Rav Kook has this incredible, I think it's a very well-known, especially for listeners of my show, it's a very well-known essay in Orota Triad, uh, the 18th essay of Orota Triad, where Rav Kook talks about the three forces uh, that come to life when Israel returns to our land. The religious, the Kodesh force, the uh, Ummah, the national force, and the Enoshut, the universalist force. You know, in Rav Kook's time, this was the Haredi world, the Zionist camp, and the, uh, you know, I guess the Jewish communists and Brit Shalom, mm-hmm. etc. Mm-hmm. And Rav Kook says that each of these three identities, each of these three forces, is an equally legitimate expression of our identity, of our collective soul, uh, and also an equally crucial component of us being who we're supposed to be, of us being able to achieve our mission in history. Um, but they can't get together too early. If they try to get together too early, they're going to water each other down. We can't have that, but eventually they have to unite. So we saw that in Rav Cook's generation, when he's writing this, there was such a thing as religious Zionism that tried to tried to combine the Kodesh with the Ummah, but ultimately it was less religious than the Haredim, and it was less nationalist than even the labor Zionists. Meaning in 1967, during the Six-Day War, when uh, yeah. the cabinet was deciding whether or not to liberate the old city of Jerusalem, you had right. local ministers saying yes and religious Zionist ministers saying no. But right. after that, I, I would say after that war, maybe as a result of that war, we can say even you know metaphysically uh, the the hashba'a, the uh, metaphysical influence of us returning to Jerusalem. Suddenly, we did have a national religious camp that's more nationalist than Likud, and I would even say more um, serious about Torah than the Haredi world. Uh, but we're still missing the third element. We're missing the Enoshut. We're missing the universalism. And I think the fact that we haven't made real practical steps towards uniting this kind of ultra-nationalist, ultra-religious vanguard with the values of Enoshut, with universalism, um, it's caused us to be imbalanced and it's allowed for the infiltration 
of, I don't know where it's coming from, Ben Shapiro or Dennis Prager or Jordan Peterson or all, all of these kind of like foreign, I mean, some of them are Jews, but all of these kind of like, I think really shallow, dangerous, right-wing Western ideas infiltrating the national religious camp that actually should be moving towards the universalism, should be moving towards uh, what will balance us and make us the full expression of all three forces. Yeah, fair. I mean, I, I don't see many of my neighbors listening to those guys, but I agree. I think the phenomena, I think, I think what's, you know, what's the phenomena that's, that's, that's keeping the nationalist camp in the bunker as opposed to opening up to a universalist vision? That universal vision, a part of it is, I think, the carriers of the universalist vision were, are seen on, on, on the other side of the scope from the national camp. They're seen as anti-nationalists, and, and they are. So they're, they're kind of the complexity, like um, my friend Shivi, Shivi Fumar says, the, the narrow bridge we're supposed to walk between nationalism and universalism. Those are the two sides you can fall off on. You know, and it's, and it's a Gesher Tzalma'ot. Um, and most people choose to jump off on one side of the bridge. And they, it's, this is right, that's wrong. You know, in a very core way. Nationalists feel like that universalism is wrong. It's a, it's a threat to me. And the threat to identity that it poses is, is, is felt. It's seen, you know. So that's why there's that deep fortress bunkering towards all those Western ideas. And even things that you, you and I could look at the Torah and say, this is, but this is our Torah. What do you mean? It's, and, and it's being denied because, no, it's part of that, that camp from over there. Because it, it's really seen as that threat. And this is, I, for me, I think we're, I've, you know, friends in this that we, we feel the pain of that tsar, that there's a vision of what's supposed to happen here that's being lost because of that in our own camp. And and then we, um, but I say, I, I don't think it's coming from Ben Shapiro. I don't think it's coming from like, I think it's coming from that question of how how the the political discourse that, you know, Ruff Cook could see those things and working in tandem as being part of a process. And a lot of people on the right have just seen it. No, it's a war of survival and that's our enemy and close the ranks in the sense that, which, you know, that camp loves to tell, Universalists that they're thinking about ghetto thinking about you know, they're they're galut thinking about about being open to the others. I mean, there's nothing more galut than to be living in a fortress and afraid to put your head out. That Judaism is going to be lost if we open up to things outside. That uh, that that Israel is going to be abandoned if I say the word Palestine. You know that 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 fear to go there, which is which is a lot of our a lot of people. I think a lot of across the world, you know, the, the, the nationalist camp and the people who are feeling have that fear. And and in a sense, it's, it's a challenge to find the model that, that shows, no, you, you can be yourself and be proud of yourself. But that self-pride doesn't mean gava, doesn't mean you're negating the other, doesn't mean you have to be you against the world. Um, well, maybe maybe the answer is that some of us can and some of us can't. Meaning, mm -hmm. um, I'll give mm -hmm. you an example, like even in the Parshat Vayeshev, you see two almost parallel uh, stories unfolding. One is Yosef in the house of Potiphar, where the wife of his master, you know, he's a slave, he's a servant in the house of Potiphar in Egypt, and the wife of his master wants to be intimate with him, and, and he ultimately resists that, and we look at his resisting that temptation as really saving himself from destruction, meaning that would have been the end of Yosef had he had succumbed to, to that temptation. But right. in the very same parsha, we see Yehuda have relations with what he understands to be a sex worker at the side of the road. Um, I mean, it turns out to be Tamar, and we have, you know, David Melech comes from that, Mashiach, etc. But I think when we look at the Yosef and Yudah model, I think these are two leadership tribes. Yosef is like the part of Jewish identity that is more focused on the material well-being of the nation. 
economics, defense, what we share in common with the other nations of the world, whereas Yehuda is more inwardly focused, like what's unique about us, what's our mission, our Torah, Jerusalem, prophecy, etc. I think that when a, a Jew is firmly rooted in his own story, like deeply rooted in his own land, his own story, his own, you know, his own people's collective destiny, I, I think that makes it safer to be able to engage with, you know, whatever it is, whether it's, you know, revolutionary theory, uh, whether it's uh, understanding the Palestinian story from their perspective, their experiences, you know, uh, without fear of losing himself. But maybe the Yosef Jew can't. Maybe, you know, the Yosef Jew has like too much of a danger of assimilation that he needs to be in the bunker, the, the right wing Yosef Jew, because there's on the Yosef spectrum, there's, I would say that, you know, if we're looking at Zionism as the movement of Mashiach ben Yosef, um, then I would say all of the political parties from Meretz to Yamina are Yosef parties, you know, like meaning some are liberal, some are conservative, but they're both coming from that Western paradigm. Whereas, you know, we can say the uh, Haredim or Yisachar and uh, maybe uh, Smotrich is Yehuda and Noam is Levi and Ben Gvir is Shimon and, uh, and the Israelis who vote for the joint list are done. Meaning like if we look at our political spectrum through the lens of the Kabbalistic interpretation of our tribal forces, uh, we might be able to A, have a more accurate understanding of our political map than just trying to apply the Western you know, left-right binary. Uh, but also, I, I think we'd be able to actually um, move forward to see where like each force kind of contributes and what's dangerous for maybe each. But but I think what we ultimately, and maybe this speaks to some of your work and some of my work on the uh, reconciliation front with Palestinians, uh, I think ultimately one of the conclusions I've reached is that it's the tribes of like Yuda and Levi and, and maybe even Shimon and Yisachar that need to be... Um, front and center when it comes to engaging with Palestinians. Like, like we are the ones, those of us who are really connected to the story of our people, who are experiencing the world uh, through the paradigm of Jewish history, through the paradigm of, of Jewish identity and Jewish destiny, and looking at the world through the lens of our ancestors and connected to the values of our prophets and sages. Like we are the Jews who I think would have the most effective, the most productive relationship with Palestinian society without losing ourselves. I like I liked a lot of that. I like that I, when we have 12 parties in the Knesset, we can definitely go to the 12th tribe uh, political theory. <laughs> definitely makes sense. Um, on the last one, but the, the, the challenge, what comes up when you say, though, which is after the challenge in the world, is the Yehuda, if it's the Yehuda side that's most identified, but also the most self, you know, I hold to a different school of thought of, of the perishing of Yehuda and Yosef, but if, if Yehuda, it's the Yehuda is in Goshen living by himself, or it's Yosef being the worldly one, the cosmopolitan, the, that means the the, the, the the work of the people in Yehuda and that world of, of inner focus, seeing it totally to my own lens, that's also the greatest challenge, of course, to, to be open to seeing something on the other side. You know, that's that's that, that that's where the fortress comes from. That's what that's the people who most need to to come and represent. Um, and it and I and I think in a sense they're going to reject the Yosef model of going out there. The cosmopolitan Yosef model of of of, of approach is not going to work for that. It needs it needs a different a different way that leads out. Um, well, well, I think that's actually the difference between Yuda and Levi. I would say Levi and Shimon are both extreme expressions of Yuda. Um, Levi might be the more intellectual, more, you know, higher understanding extreme expression of Yuda. But I think what separates Levi from Yuda is Yuda is able to see the value in all the other tribal forces. And he's able to look out. He happens to be looking in, but he's able mm -hmm. to look out. Uh, whereas mm -hmm. I think I, I think like Shimon and Levi can't look out. I mean, they're they, they just see it. it's our way or it's wrong. Whereas you mm -hmm. don't say, well, this is our way, 
And that way also has value. And maybe sometimes we can try that. And, uh, you know, in this point in history, maybe this is more appropriate than that. I, 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 I say, I think, I, I think what Yehuda has is the willingness to make a mistake, the willingness mm -hmm. to be wrong. Right. And, um, and when you, and there's a, there's a deep level of, of Amuna and confidence in, mm -hmm. in, 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 in living your story, not, not, not even believing yourself, but living, being in your story that, that, that can allow that, which, I, which, which is a really a meet of, 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 of leadership. You know, of, of willing to make the mistake, of to take it on, of to, to, to be ma'arev for, um, I think and Yehuda had this, had this amunah in the story, this deeper level in the story is going on, and whatever mistake, if I'm going to make a mistake, I'll, I'll pay the price, but the story is going to go on, and I'm not, um, Yehuda said, I'll give, you know, you test the Yaakov, so take my next world, you know, take my take my world, if I make that mistake, that's, that's a quality of, of being able to live your story and be able to find this to be willing to, and that's what I think what you're saying about Levi and Shimon, other parts in that in that camp, right. that, that are, are afraid are afraid of making a mistake. I feel that's it's a zero sum game. It's all it's, it's all lost if we, if we you know we live in our bunker and we if we open the door, mm -hmm. uh, it could be all over. Right. So where can listeners find more of your work? Um, so one thing I'll, I'll post a Shmita Israelit in Teva Ivri are two Israeli projects working about Shmita, and there's actually a listing there of a lot of different projects going on there. Um, and, and my work is also at, at, at Roots. You can find us on, on Facebook at Friends of Roots. Um, we have a website, friendsofroots.net. Um, it's kind of our, our, our English language website there. Um, but yeah, thanks, Yuda. Thanks for the chance. It's also great to combine these worlds. As I said, my chavuta of last hour about the Pasha. With Shmita, with uh, where I'm heading in the next hour, all coming together. So thank you for uh, thanks for the vision and the fusion. Thanks for coming on, Charles Yudelman from Roots Shorashim, resident of Tekoa down in southern Judea. Thanks so much for joining me on the show. Uh, listeners can check out the show notes for this episode, where we hope to put all the links that Shoal mentioned by going to visionmag.org/backslash/the-next-stage-68.